At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. International version of the call up today as we're talking about the top prospects from the NPB and the KBO who have either recently been posted or by all accounts are about to get posted. I'm Aram Layton. He's Jack McMullen. And of course, we're going to talk a little bit about Bowman Draft uh, at some point in this episode as well. Some of our favorite autographs outside of the first round that are going to be in that set. Jack, you edited my long, long, long piece on Jung Hoo Lee uh, that we just put out. And and that is linked in the episode description. If you want to go check that out, as is the Yoshinobu Yamamoto piece. If you missed that from a, a couple weeks ago, both of those already live. We're going to be putting out pieces on each of these other guys, but I'm really excited to talk Jung Hoo Lee after that piece just came out. And uh, I'm just curious, like, how much more geared up are you now that you just kind of dove into the, the data? We're going to walk through it, but how much more geared up are you on Jung Hoo Lee now? Yeah, I know way more about Jung Hu Lee. It, it's good because I, I think with these guys, and I've I've equated it to the foreign basketball players that go top ten in the draft. Like Kristaps Porzingis, the little kid doesn't cry if Kristaps played at Michigan State for a year. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you didn't know anything about Porzingis when he came over. Yeah. So we're looking at Jung Hu Lee, and it's like, okay, he's the second best center fielder on the market after Bellinger, but why? And nobody could answer the why question unless you have data. And thankfully, you put data into common English, and that was great. So um, if you have 10 minutes to learn about a guy that's probably going to make 50 to $60 million this offseason and is probably going to be a starting everyday guy on a good team next year, I would go read that because it does look like he's cut from the Quan Arise Bregman Verdugo cloth, which is great. Elite bat to ball guys, maybe limited in the power department, but his bat stays in the zone for so damn long. He might just be good right away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, we're going to hit on some of these key points and and a bunch of the the things that we highlighted in that piece, but there's just no way I'm going to be able to go through all of the details that are listed in that piece. So definitely go check that out if you want more on Lee. I, as I've noticed when we put that out, 
a lot of people want Jung Lee on their team. And I get why, because I started to look at the center field market in general, not just this free agency, but just in general, it's, it's a tough position it, for obvious reasons. You've got to be able to defend. Then you got to be able to hit. So it, it's, it's like looking for guys at shortstop for so long. It was so hard to get guys that could stick there and hit. And now every, everybody that's the best athlete generally plays there, but it seems like center field is, a pretty thin position. Uh, when you look at some of the young upcoming stars, it, it'll fill out. But I think we only had two players with an F4 over over four last year. Some of that has to do with injuries. Some of that has to do with, you know, the fact that some older guys have moved out of center field. But it goes without being said, like, Jung-Hoo Lee could easily be one of the better center fielders in Major League Baseball next year. Two guys with an F4 over five. I'm going to walk through center fielders right now. And, you know, you you stop me when you feel like Jung-Hoo Lee fits in. Julio Rodriguez, J-Rod's better. Luis Robert, Robert's better. TJ Friedel is a weird one. He's like such an outlier. Is TJ Friedel a one-off? Who do you want on your team in 24, Friedel or Jung-Hoo Lee? Jung-Hoo Lee, because I think if you put Jung-Hoo Lee in Great American Ballpark, his power would play up the same way too. I thought about putting Friedel in that chart of similar batted ball profiles, but it was too much Mm -hmm. of like a one-off season for me. Um, I wanted to compare him to some more established guys, but um, I think Lee is one of those guys that it's so ballpark dependent. Um, where I think if he plays somewhere like Great American, he could sneak out 15, 20 home runs. If he plays somewhere like San, uh, Seattle, he might only hit eight. So it's it's one of those types of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, Nimmo, I'm taking Nimmo over yeah. Lee. Yeah. James Altman? It, that's close. Okay. It, it, talk about the complete opposite of a type of player. It's like your opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. I'd probably go Lee. I mean, he's younger. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Cody Bellinger and Michael Harris. I probably go with both those guys. Both those guys. But after that, man, I mean, Lars Nupar played a lot of center. It's kind of a toss up at that point. So you got to note you're signing like the sixth or seventh best center fielder in baseball when this happens. And how much does the sixth or seventh best center fielder in baseball cost? We'll find out. I think a lot more if he was proven, you know, and I think just the fact that you don't know for sure that he is going to be the sixth or seventh, right? That there are skeptics of how is he going to handle velocity when he comes over and and how is he going to handle, you know, more elite breaking stuff. Those are all good questions. And and those are things that we're going to kind of dive into. So we might as well just start with Jung-Hoo Lee and then it's all pitchers from there. So Jung-Hoo Lee, you know, we'll, we'll dive into some of those questions specifically, but just kind of setting the scene first, Jack, like, this guy has put up just phenomenal numbers in the KBO. And yes, the KBO is a step down from the NPB. And for reference, and I'm going to put put out a short form video on this similar to the Yamamoto piece that you can check out on the Just Baseball YouTube, like eight, 10 minute, everything you need to know kind of thing. Baseball America did a survey on uh, front office members, scouts, et cetera. And the overwhelming consensus of what they're in now, and it is at the end of the day, kind of, you know, you, you don't have a way to back this with evidence, but the overwhelming consensus was that the KBO is sandwiched between double A and triple A in terms of level of yeah. competition. Nobody, not one surveyed person said that it was below double A, which I think is really important though. You know, I, I don't know if you can exactly peg how, how difficult the competition is, but I think it's important that nobody said it was below double A. Some said that it was equal with double A, but no one said below. So you say somewhere around that range. The numbers that Jung-Hoo Lee put up would be amazing at any level and would be uh, something that makes him a top prospect anywhere. So that in tandem with the defense, I mean, he comes stateside now that he's been posted and, and he's going to be signed with as good of a track record as a 25-year-old you know position player can have. 
Yeah, because he's been playing for seven years, which is hard to fathom. This guy was the first guy in KBO history to play a full KBO season right after graduating high school. He was like the youngest guy to ever play a full KBO season. He played 140 games when he was 18 years old. This guy turns 26 next August. Uh, In his age 25 season in the KBO, he was still five years younger than the average hitter in that league. And, And this guy, so far in his KBO career... Career slash line of 340, 407, 491 with a 9.7% walk rate, a 7.7% K rate. So he walked noticeably more than he struck out. An ankle fracture limited him to 86 games this year out of a possible 150-ish. But his 318 batting average this year was the worst mark of his seven-year career. And 455 was the lowest slug of his KBO career since he was an 18 year old in 2017, when he slashed 324, 395, 417. So this guy has rolled out of bed and hit 310 plus in a league that is somewhere between double A AA and triple A since he was a legal adult. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that in 2022, his last healthy season, we saw a power breakout too. 23 yeah. homers, uh, just more doubles, just slugging more, hitting for the average. He won the MVP of, of the league that year. And then you know, I don't know if it was a nagging injury. I don't know if it was a, a, a one-off, you know, broke his foot type of thing. But regardless, he got hurt, didn't have a chance to finish strong in the season this past year in 2023. Couple key points in the data here. It's really hard to measure the batted ball data because we're comparing apples to oranges here, right? So I was trying to put him in buckets of hitters and it's hard because you don't know how the data is going to translate, but you could look at Ha-Sung Kim as a precedent and see, okay, he lost about 5% percentage points in his zone contact and about 3 percentage points in the overall contact. Uh, some things kind of changed a little bit here and there, but in terms of the EVs, it's it's relatively similar. And I think the EVs are the one thing that you can kind of expect to stick. And the other thing is, I think you can expect... Uh, the ball to carry a little bit more in the big leagues. Uh, the KBO had their own dead ball issue in 2019. And, you know, it's it's been a little bit of an up and down with, with, with the balls that they're using there. We don't totally know. Uh, but I do think generally speaking, with the seams just being tighter on the Major League Baseball, it just seems to carry a little bit better, uh, depending though on, on, on when you, which Major League Baseball you get to. The swing mechanics are so impressive. And, you know, we included a lot of like video in, the, in this piece that that's written on just baseball.com. And I think what stands out to me, Jack, is like that, and there's nothing similar with Prince Fielder other than this, but that Prince Fielder move where he gets his foot down, right? Like he starts open, it's a toe tap, but it's like a toe tap with like a three Mississippi count in between, meaning like he loads before the pitcher even breaks his hands and his foot's down. And most guys don't do that because it is so hard to hold your back hip when you get to your launch position early. Right. You just want to get it out. You want to get it out. You want to get it out. Also, you get in swing mode because you see the ball so early. Guys that try the no stride, you know, with two strikes sometimes struggle with it. Alec Burleson came on the call up and talked about it. He struggled with it at times because he saw the ball so early. He was always in swing mode. So the fact that you can also hold your body and stay out of swing mode, he uses everything else to his advantage to get to your spot so early. He can see the ball so early. He makes phenomenal swing decisions. And on top of that, he doesn't miss 97% zone contact. That's obviously going to take a hit stateside. Of course it is. But if it takes a hit to 92%, when you look at the exit velocities, which his average exit velocity is pretty close to league average, his 90th percentile is a tick or two below league average. And his max is 
107, 108, which is more than fine. That's that's more than fine. So yes. the bucket that I put him in was like that Quan Verdugo, as you mentioned. And um, and I even threw Bregman in there because Bregman lifts the ball more than anybody. But if you put yeah. Bregman in, in, in Seattle, he's not hitting that many home runs. Actually, if you look at expected home runs in Baltimore, he would have had seven. And I know that's a very extreme example, but this is a guy that utilizes his environment well, makes a ton of contact and lifts. Yeah. Jung-Hoo Lee, with, when he's ahead in the count, he turns into a, almost a Bregman light, which is why I think he can squeeze out a little bit of power. Average launch angle of 12 degrees, but then when he is ahead in the count, that launch angle surges to 18 degrees, which is Alex Bregman's average launch angle. I don't think he's going to hit 30 home runs like Bregman. But the point is, when he's ahead in the count, he looks for a specific pitch and lets it eat and tries to look for a pitch that he can lift. Yeah. That makes me feel like he can at least squeeze a little bit of power out of here. And if he hits 10, 15 home runs, everything else is going to take care of itself because he's a great defender and center. He's a plus yeah. runner and he's an elite bat to ball guy. One of the few hitters I've seen whose swing rate goes down when he's ahead in the count because he's hunting one thing and one thing only a pitch he can lift. Yeah. How many bags do you think he's going to swipe in a, in a given major league season? Cause I know that he moves well, but, and I know that you mentioned it in the article, stolen bases are not as much of a thing in, in yeah, the case. Do you have any that. idea why that is? I was floored when I saw that success no. rates were low and nobody had, like nobody had 40 bags. Like, it's like no well, a year. If you're lucky, it's like one every three years. No idea. I'm thinking maybe, you know, like there's there's an added emphasis on holding runners and, and varying your looks and all that versus, you know, like there are a lot of relievers in Major League Baseball that are focused on again, one they thing and one thing only. And that's I'm going to throw 100 by this MF and they don't care about the guy at first base. Yes. So I, I think everybody might just care. You know what I mean? And they might handle the running game a little bit more because if everybody cared about base runners and handled the running game, Acuna wouldn't have swiped 70. I know that. Yeah, even with the new rules, it just wouldn't happen. Like Acuna yeah. just knew when to go and just, base was stolen sometimes, you know, it's just right. already stolen. We have, we've gotten to a point, I think in pitching where it's, Hey, if it, if it's going to, you know, fuck with you, if it's going to mentally turn you into, you know, a pretzel, like, don't worry about the guy at first base. If he's at second, like just don't let him touch home plate, which is not great for the game of baseball and the strategy of baseball. Uh, But if if that's the thing that needs to be done for the sake of pitchers, uh, go ahead and do it, I guess. Um, Going back to that pre-swing move that you're talking about that. So I guess it's like a toe tap, but it's a long hold. He gets into his spot. It takes elite balance to be able to do that. The only current guy that I really know that does that is Otani, where he stacks on that front big toe. He inverts his foot and points his heel at a pitcher, and Mm -hmm. he stays there from delivery to start of the swing. And then he turns over and fires. This is different because he almost takes that, you know, load step and then freezes and then he takes another and moves forward. Yohan Moncada did it, but it was a rhythmic tap. That's another guy that I remember. But like, I think the closest thing when it comes to balance that you see right now is Otani. And clearly yeah. this guy is not the behemoth that Otani is. No, it's funny. A lot of the best power hitters did that, I think, just to be as on time as they can and and just to see the ball early. Barry Bonds, it wasn't as early, but if you look at Barry Bonds' swing, it's that early toe tap and kind of hold it early. Vinny Pascantino does it. And a lot of yeah. guys, a lot of guys do it just not as like as broken up, I guess. Right. Usually it's that a little bit more rhythmic with with Lee. It's I'm here and I'm sitting here for a little bit. But then the ability to just kind of get the bat to anything is, is the other side. I, a couple of things that really stood out to me. 
was how good he is with two strikes. So I talked about how he swings less when he's, you know, ahead in the count because he's zeroed in on one spot. But when he's behind in the count, he swings way more because he does not want to leave it up to the umpire. He knows how good he is bat to ball wise. And if it's anywhere near the zone, he's going to spoil it. In all counts, he had a 41% swing rate, 97% zone contact, and slugged 530. With two strikes, that swing rate jumped to 66%. So that's a 25% jump in swing rate. Zone contact remained identical. Swinging strike rate jumped by 0.7%, which is crazy considering he's swinging 25% more and is behind in the count and still slugged 450 in those spots. Out of zone contact rate of 83%. You know how absurd that is? Just to put that in perspective, the only hitter that had an out of zone contact rate above 80% last year was Luis Arias at 87%, who is the wizard of all wizards. And nobody else was above 77%. So being able to spoil pitches like that, it's like with two strikes, if you put anything near the zone, he's either going to hit it or he's going to spoil it. And even if it's slightly outside of the zone, he's still going to spoil it. And he still has a good approach. So I thought it was really impressive to see what he can do with two strikes and then how he leverages his hitters counts. He's such a malleable hitter. My question is, can you be that malleable against elite stuff? Right. Can you get away with swinging 25 percent more with two strikes? Can you see the ball as well to be so selective when you're ahead in the count? Um, I think he can. I think he's capable of doing that. But that's going to be the question when he comes over stateside, I think, is can those things that he did that almost toying with his pitchers, can he do that to the same degree or even close to the same degree? If he can do it anywhere near the same degree, he's going to be a really good ball player. And, you know, I think it's important to note the acclimation process, too. Right. Uh, For sure. Kim, Kim came in at 25 years old. He's seen his OPS jump by over 100 points over the last couple of years, and he was great in his third full season. Um, yeah. I think Lee will have a little bit more seamless of a transition because he's a better hitter. Um, yeah. But, you know, it might he might be a slightly below league average hitter the first year, and then it might be a little bit above the next year, and then he might be well above the year after that. But the reason why I feel really safe going after Lee if I'm a big league team, you're going to get the great defense in center. You're going to get the ball put in play. If he's a nine hitter, that's making a lot of contact. That's fine out of the gate and and kind of take that Michael Harris with the Braves type of approach um, and then really blossom into something a little bit more. Obviously, Harris has more power, but, you know, just showing that you don't have to hit to be valuable. So I'm really excited about him. I think there's no shortage of teams that are going to be interested. And I hope he goes to a hitter's park because if he goes to a hitter's park, uh, he, he could be a force. Yeah, it takes me into my last kind of two prevailing thoughts on Lee. With Harris, yes, Harris has more pop, but Harris also has more chase and more whiff yep. than Jung Hoo Lee does. So yep. the way that I'm kind of viewing this is, you know, even if he does backslide a little bit in every offensive facet there, like what he does in the batter's box, if everything scales back by 3%, he's still a top flight eight hitter. I'm not worried at all. I think he's and, better than that. Yeah. So year one, he's an eight hitter. He's a seven hitter. Year two, he can be a leadoff guy. I do think that this guy's going to be a leadoff guy in Major League Baseball for mm-hmm. five years. I, yep. I yep. do believe that. I'm, I'm with you. And the last thing I'll say is plus runner. You know, I, we'll see if it translates into bags. I think it will stateside because he's going to want to squeeze out more value, you know, and, and and try to be that that kind of player that they want him to be. Uh, but on top of that, I mean, I had him at four flat run times to first. Uh, he has a good arm in center field which is really impressive too. Like I think he had like 30 outfield assists over the last three seasons and yeah, absolutely like just motors. Was it 28? Yeah. yeah I think I mean, so. Like, just absolutely insane. And um, just one more little strikeout stat 
from the beginning of 2022, including World Baseball Classic games, Lee struck out 57 times in 245 games. It's a 5% strikeout rate. Of those 57 strikeouts, 22 were looking. Of the 22 looking, nine were called third strikes that were balls. (laughs) So 35 of his strikeouts were swinging, and only seven of those swinging strikeouts were in the zone. So the only way that you can really get Jung-Hoo Lee to strike out is to get him to chase at a pitch he can't hit, which is very rare, uh, because even if he chases, he usually can hit it, or get him to go down looking on a pitch that's not actually a strike. That's pretty tough to do. Of course, that'll change a little bit against better pitching, but even if he did that in double A, I don't care. That's insane. That's insane at any level, anywhere. I don't care. So very excited about Jung-Hoo Lee. Uh, very excited for you all to potentially read, you know, that, that entire piece. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the other detailed piece we have linked in this episode description. Um, I mean, I've been in your ear about this guy now, nonstop, just sh- sending you like random video over the last few weeks, like data, all that stuff. He's going to make $200 million. He just won another MVP, his third straight MVP in the NPB. Uh, it, it should just be in NPB, right? It's the MLB thing, right? It's in, in MLB, in NPB. I, I saw so. somebody say that, but I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. In yeah, NPB. Sure. We'll we'll go with it. Insane arsenal, right? You can't really you can't really put into words exactly how unique they are. I tried my best in that piece and and you know, detail like everything that makes his his arsenal so unique. But what really leads the way and what we saw is the blend of command and just an elite fastball. He's got five pitches, all of which are really good, and we'll go into each of them. But I think what really stands out to me is he fills up the zone, he hits his spots, and he has a fastball that just has a unique shape that few guys can hit. So that leads the way. But even if some for some weird reason, guys are on that 93 to 95 mile an hour fastball, which, by the way, comes from a 5.455 release height, which is on par with, you know, the Sonny Grays of the world and uh, the, the Zach Wheelers of the world and the Max Scherzers of the world. He has four other pitches you can go get you with. Um, so to, to be able to do that is pretty remarkable. And, and it's a very short list of pitchers with a five, four, five, five release height that gets 17 inches of vert on their fastball. And that's just the beginning of the arsenal. Yeah. And pretty much nobody has the accolades that he does, but before I give you the accolades and the whole spiel on Yamamoto, I did spend some time figuring out the posting fee math. Because he is going to be a $200 million guy. Let's say he makes $210 million for the sake of, um, I guess, realism. Like, I think he's probably going to sign a a 210. I don't think it's going to be 200 firmly. But here's what I figured out. And this was the MLB.com kind of glossary that they have of all the weird, wonky terms in Major League Baseball. It's great. And it, it pretty much had a formula here. So the NPB MLB posting math. An MPB team, so the Oryx, Buffaloes, and Yamamoto's case, posts the player. Major League Baseball, any team in there, can sign the player after they're posted. Once the contract is agreed upon, a Major League Baseball team must pay that NPB team that posted the player. And the payment structure is 20% of the first $25 million, 17.5% of the next $25 million, and then 15% of any additional money. So say a guy signs for $25 million, you only owe him, you only owe the team $5 million. You only owe that 20%. Say a guy signs for $40 million, you owe him $5 million, you owe that team $5 million, and then you owe them 17.5% of the additional $15 million on top of that to get to 40. 
The example that I worked with was Seiya Suzuki, who signed five years, $85 million from the Hiroshima Carp to the Chicago Cubs. So five for 85. You get the 20% of the first 25. That's $5 million. You get 17.5% of the next 25. So that's about $4.4 million. And then now that you got to 50, you've got a remaining $35 million. 15% of that is $5.25 million. So you add up the first 25 sum, the next 25 sum, and then the remaining 35, you get to 14.625. That's what the Cubs owed the Hiroshima Carp. That doesn't go to Seiya Suzuki. That, that goes right to the team. If you're an international soccer fan at all, it's the transfer fee. Yep. You pay this record transfer fee for Kylian Mbappe or you know whoever the hell. That goes to the team. That doesn't go to Mbappe. You then have to negotiate with Mbappe. So you're just paying the team for the rights to that person. So Yoshinobu Yamamoto, if he were to sign a $210 million contract, the team that signs him is going to have to give Yamamoto and Joel Wolf $210 million. And then they also give the Oryx Buffaloes $33.375 million. So yeah. if you make a $210 million investment into Yamamoto – you are paying $243 million, 375000 on top of that. Like it's it's mind-boggling the amount of money that goes to that NPB team, but they're giving up their best player when they yeah. don't have to. Exactly. No, and, and I think that's that's the part of it where it's like it's inevitable that he's going to go. Might as well do it this way. And that's money that I'm sure will be reinvested into their team, even though they're not going to be able to replace a talent like Yamamoto. But that I Eric think that's Penny. something that was really important because I don't I don't even I didn't even understand the entire like math of the posting situation. Yeah. So I appreciate you breaking that down. And I remember it coming up with Matsuzaka, where which it was an expensive uh yeah. posting fee as well because of how much money he got. And obviously that one didn't work out the same way, but this is a different beast here. And you know, Yamamoto, I think is going to be worth every bit of the money. And I, I think he'd probably be closer to 250 in terms of his his contract alone if it weren't for the posting fee. That's why I think it'll be a little bit above 200 and maybe, you know, 230, 240 will be the all-in price uh, for him. Uh, but it should be pretty happy bidding here because, I mean, you can mention the accolades, Jack. It's it's insane. He's, he's insane. Um, I was reading the Oryx Buffaloes, I think, plan to use the Yamamoto posting fee money to go sign the KBO MVP, Eric Fetty. Like but, insane that it's going to go to Fetty out of anybody on planet. That's Earth. really funny. But Yoshinobu Yamamoto doesn't turn 26 until next August. This guy's already a five-time NPB All-Star, three Japanese pitching triple crowns already, which is wins, strikeouts, and ERA, three-time Pacific League MVP, three Sawamura Awards, which is the Cy Young of the NPB, uh, Pacific League ERA titles, he's got four of them, and he's got four strikeout titles in the Pacific League as well. So in his career at 25 years old, he's thrown three shy of 900 innings in NPB. He's got a 70 and 29 record, a 182 ERA, a whip at 0.94, Kang nine and a half per nine, walking two per nine, and allowing less than 0.5 homers per nine. And this year, in 171 innings, he was 17 and six with a 116 ERA, two homers allowed against 659 hitters, punched out nine and a half, walked one and a half. He's perfect. This baseball reference page is Bonds esque. It's like <laughs> you can't find a bad stretch anywhere. His final NPB start 
And this was probably the, the one chance to find a bad stretch because he gave up five earned runs and or, or six runs. I don't know if they were earned, but five runs and six runs. And then he he throws in the championship series, final NPB start. He goes nine innings of one run ball on a solo shot, no walks, 14 strikeouts. His 136th pitch of the night was like 96 miles an hour. It It's absolutely remarkable what this guy can do at 5'10". And he uses that height to his advantage because he has that low release height. The fastball takes off, but also gets arm side run. So you have him like front dooring lefties. You have him boring it in on righties. And he can kind of pick guys apart with the fastball. But then he's got this splitter that he commands even better than his fastball. He landed the splitter for a strike 72% of the time, had a chase rate over 50%, which is insane at 90 degree or at 90 miles per hour. So, I mean, that's a pitch that is easily plus plus right out of the gate. So you've got a plus fastball. I'd say plus plus fastball. You've got a plus plus splitter. His curveball is disgusting. To be able to throw a splitter and then be able to spin a curveball like that too, crazy amount of break. Uh, just absolutely darts off the table at 76 to 78, flirting with 3,000 RPMs. And somehow with all of that break, he lands it for a strike nearly 70% of the time as well. Then he mixes in a cutter that, you know, I think that's his worst pitch because sometimes it'll back up on him. That's the one pitch that like he can leave up and gets hit, you know, a little bit. Uh, but then he mixes in the slider, the sweeper that I think he's going to throw way more stateside. I hope he does because it's disgusting, especially against righties. I mean, all of those pitches on top of the fact that he could probably succeed just fastball splitter. Like, I think he could turn lineups over just with that fastball and splitter, the way he can go east, west, north, south. But the way he can change his looks now through lineups and, and through as he faces teams more and more. I mean, he can sequence fastball curveball first time through. He could sequence fastball splitter the next time through. He could just go straight fastball and I think get through a lineup because of how good it is and how good he commands it. I mean, is it far-fetched to say that this guy's going to be a top five pitcher in the game, barring health issues, like right away? Um, I don't think it's totally far-fetched. I will say that's like, that's what, 90th percentile outcome? Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what 80th percentile outcome. That's like 95th percentile. I mean, the top, top five is pretty insane. Yeah, it is pretty insane. Um, My thing is like, he's he's got that, you know, I can go to any pitch and any count type thing, which is what the appeal with Darvish was when he first came over. And you remember how ridiculously good Darvish was in Texas as soon as he came over. That is where I think the expectations should be set. Um, and they're high expectations, surely. But, you know, if that's disappointing for you to hear, I need you to remember that you mm-hmm. Darvish has signed three separate six-year deals. Yeah. And you Darvish... Yeah. Since he entered the league, has probably been a top 10 pitcher in the game if you were to go by strictly war accumulation. You Darvish is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah. And I think we should be looking at Yamamoto in a very similar way. Absolutely. And, and when you look at pitch characteristics, you know, the fastball shape and stuff, like that could be better. So that's the exciting part. But I think that's the most likely, you know, like thing to expect. I think it's a reasonable expectation. And you can dream on even more than that. That's insane. Like that's that's everything you you want out of out of a pitcher. And uh, I'm excited to see kind of where, I guess, what kind of learning curve there is, if at all. And, and I don't think there will be too much because of the command, because of the fastball quality, and then all of the assortments of pitches that he can go to, to be able to get lefties, righties, and and just continue to give different looks. So I am very eager to see who who signs this guy. And again, way more detail, way more on the entire arsenal uh, in, in the description. 
but just to fly through the speeds real quick too. fastball is pretty much averages right, right, right below 95 splitters, 89 to 91 curveball, 76 to 78 cutters, 91 to 93. And then that sweepers mid eighties. That's a really fun blend of different velocities, different shapes and different looks uh, that it's just going to be really hard to be able to, to, to hit. And the last thing I'll say is, he holds his velocity. You can talk about his 5'10", 175 frame. I don't care. It's low effort. And he throws 130 pitches and is still maintaining his velocity. So I'm not that worried about that either. Next name, Naoki Uwas. Actually, no, let's go Shota Imanaga. And then we'll go to Naoki Uwasawa. Shota Imanaga is going to be the next piece that we have live on justbaseball.com. By the time you're listening to this, it might be out. If it is, it'll also be linked in this episode description. Japanese lefty. We saw a little bit of him in the WBC, Jack. Um, and most of the years, he'd be probably a, a really buzzy, popular name. And he's, you know, for those that are following very closely and really want their team to get some, add some pitching, he's been a discussed name uh, in Managa. But I feel like he's been overshadowed to a degree because of how insane this uh, Japanese and, and, and Korean class is, where in a lot of other years, Imanaga's target number one. Yeah, um, Imanaga has... I think flown under the radar, but I do think he's probably going to sign a $40 million deal. That's a, that's a steal. You think, okay. So I don't know though. He he might like he's 30 and he's five ten lefty doesn't have the same pitch mix, but again, not the same amount of accolades, but when you dive into the numbers and and some of the accolades, there's a lot to like there. And he's coming off of another fantastic season uh, and just turned 30. There's a ton to like. I, I know that there's some weird caveat where it's like if you have nine years of service in the NPB, you can, you know, file for free agency and avoid the posting fee. But if I have this right, Imanaga has eight NPB seasons under his belt, not nine. So it's still, you know, the posting fee. Maybe you post him before his last year. That makes more sense for for Yokohama, which is his team in NPB. But Shota Imanaga is a 30-year-old. He's got a career 3.18 ERA in just over 1,000 NPV innings. This year, 159 innings. He had an ERA at 2.5, 2.66. But the K rate's high, 10.5 Ks per nine, and he doesn't walk anybody. One and a half walks per nine. I think this guy is, and I, I don't want to call anybody coming into a brand new country, playing in a brand new league, high floor. Yeah, but he does feel relatively high floor. Yeah, because if ten and a half regresses to eight and a half or nine Ks per nine, and one and a half walks per nine regresses to two two and a half walks per nine, I want that guy as my five. I think he makes a ton of sense for a team looking for back end rotation help, um, if they're willing to spend forty to fifty million dollars on back end rotation help. Yeah, and he might not get that much because he's thirty, and I don't know how many years people are willing to commit to a guy that's not proven at thirty, but. I would. I would give him that because you mentioned that the floor, even if it didn't work as a starter, that fastball out of the bullpen will play. I was trying to find a fastball comparison from a starter and I really couldn't because everything I said about Yamamoto, copy paste with Imanaga. It's a lower velocity, but he actually gets more carry, same release height. So he releases it from about 5'5", which, you know, 5.5 feet. That's again, really low. He gets about 19 inches of induced vertical break from there. There's not a pitcher in Major League Baseball starter that gets 19 inches of vert from a release height below 5.6 feet. So it's already in that outlier realm. Yes, it's only 90 to 93, but I wanted to point something out, you know, really interesting. And this is like kind of the data on it in terms of 
shape versus velo, a fastball at 91 miles per hour with 19 inches of vert has the same whiff number. It generates the same rate of whiff as a 96 mile per hour fastball with 15 inches of vert. So think about that. We get so excited about 96, sure, but 91 with 19 inches of vert, which is what he averages, is is going to get the same amount of whiff in the big leagues. And you you build in also the deception. He has this inward twist. I sent you a picture of him like coiled right before he's about to you know uncork that almost slingshot delivery, and it's kind of out horizontal as well. Hides the ball really well and commands the heck out of it. So when you have that carry with the fastball and you can spot from that low release point. I think he's going to be a problem for a lot of hitters. I think he's going to be an uncomfortable at bat, especially for lefties. But if it doesn't work as a starter for whatever reason, he could be Alex Vesia out of the pen. That was like one of the most similar fastball shapes I saw was yeah. Vesia. Yeah. Um, and Vesia has no other pitch. It's literally his fastball is his only pitch. There's other pitches for Imanaga that we'll get to, but I think his fastball alone gives him a, a great chance of being a back end of the rotation starter, even because of how well he commands it. And the tilt and the turn from Vesia is very similar to what you get from Imanaga. I think the best example of lefty turn like that and torque is Chapman. That's how Chapman yes. gears yeah. back and gets 105. I think Imanaga probably gets different results from that turn. And, and the different results are, yes, it takes off from a vert perspective, but it also probably takes off horizontally a little bit and, yep, and runs arm side. So it's almost like it's darting up and away from a lefty to right-handed hitters, yep. which works. And that's why he punches out 10 and a half per nine. Yep. You've, and got, throws, you've got a fastball the guys swing under all the time. He throws it 55% of the time. Think yeah. about it. A fastball so like, that's at, at 91 to 92 that's being thrown 55% of the time should be getting shellacked. And it's not. For, so for me, 55% of the time, if it's a good fastball, is like the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. If you're 60 plus, you're fastball reliant. Yeah. If you're under 50, why aren't you throwing it more? Yeah. I think the 50 to 60 range is the best spot and 55 would obviously be perfect. And we're going to see him probably throw the splitter a little bit more um, stateside. His splitter is really good, especially because it plays off of that, you know, that high carry heater, but lands the heater for a strike 75% of the time. Uh, and he loves to work up in the zone because that's where it plays well. So on occasion, he'll get ambushed and give up a home run. That's like his one Achilles heel. But almost the vast majority of the home runs he gave up were solo shots. So he's really good at just attacking the zone, limit the damage, you know, and, and he'll work a little bit differently when it's, you know, not that type of situation. It's kind of similar to Nestor Cortez. And I think that's kind of the best comp for Imanaga is Nestor Cortez-esque. Uh, but I think yeah. he could be even better. Um, the splitter threw it about 10% of the time. Uh, but also had like a variation of the change that might've just got double tagged. So he could have thrown it upwards of 15% of the time lands it for a strike 65, 66% of the time, tons of whiff, high chase, a swinging strike rate over 20%. And then he's got a pretty good slider as well. That plays really well from that release slot. So he can go at, you know, righties with that fastball splitter. And then he can go at lefties with this fastball slider. And then he also has this like taste breaking curve that whole flip in there in the low seventies to steal strikes. He's got a field of pitch, man. And I, I feel really safe with him being a back-end starter, but I think he has the uh, the stuff and the pitchability to flash, you know, number three type upside. Worth 50 million to me. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think this is an area where with pitching being so thin, we could see, you know, teams kind of getting excited about potentially being able to, to snag somebody for a little bit below what the market would be of a guy of his abilities. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And remember, 50 equals 59, pretty much. You're yes, giving nine to the exactly. team. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. If important. you think this guy's a $60 million pitcher, he might be a $50 million pitcher exactly. when you look at the contract. Exactly. Uh, next up, Naoki Uwasawa. And Uwasawa is another guy that probably floating under the radar a little bit because of how good this entire class is. Uwasawa's had a really, really strong career overall so far. Um, I don't know what the what the accolades look like. Uwasawa is another piece that's going to be coming next week. Uh, but unique player that I think has kind of flown under the radar because of his velo, similar to Imanaga. He's maybe even a tick below that. He's more 90, 91. But some interesting shape characteristics there too. These guys are all vert guys. So it sounds like if we sound like a broken record. It's there's a reason why these guys are coming stateside. But what do you have on Uwasawa and kind of what what his you know track record proceeds coming into the stateside because he just got posted I think yesterday. Yeah, so he was an all star in eighteen, but this guy same age as Imanaga pretty much. He turns thirty in January. Um, he had a two nine six ERA and one hundred and seventy innings in NPB this year. Really low K numbers, six and a half strikeouts per nine, but just two and a half walks per nine. Um, he averaged seven innings per start this year. So this guy, I'd assume, and I I don't know the data off the dome, but I'd assume that this guy really is a ground ball savant. And and we're talking vert guys. You said what vert with him? So that's speed? the funny. That's the funny thing. Um, I was actually diving into it just just briefly, and I haven't done the full piece yet. But looking at Uwasawa, he would be so much better off mixing in a sinker ball. because he's a high IVB guy but it's from a super high release point. And as you know, it's easier to create IVB from a higher release point, right? Because it's just, it's so much harder to induce vertical break from a lower release point. So yeah. with him releasing it high, yeah, the, the scale of which, you know, a fastball is is hard to hit, you have to have higher IVB. The higher the release point, the higher the IVB needs to be. So, you know, 17 inches from a 5.5 release point is going to play better than you know, 20 inches from a 6-2 release height, which is what Uwasawa is. But if you're going to have a high release height, generally sinkers play better off of that. Or you have to have a ridiculous amount of carry like a Justin Verlander, high release point, high carry, high velo. He doesn't well, have the velo. Be, and you need to be so good at the top of the strike zone too. You need yeah. to be able to kind of ride that plane. Otherwise, that that's when it comes to yanking it down. Yeah. Right. That's and, when and the extension hey, yeah. is important. Usually guys that release high are big, tall dudes that can get some extension like a Verlander yeah. and some of these others. He doesn't quite get that extension. So there's some like missing pieces there. But I, I feel like a team is going to sign to a solid, let's say a two year cheap deal. And you put this guy in the pitch lab and you're like, OK, well, you can't teach 20 inches of vert. He's got that. Let's use that to our advantage here. And then let's also mix in a sinker. Let's start to tweak the arsenal a little bit, because like you said, he's, he's had some success. And I think this is somebody that you got to feel pretty confident that he could be a five if he can kind of feel out the rest of his arsenal. I think he's a candidate to really improve with some tweaks. 
What's his secondary pitch? So he he's of course got a splitter like everybody, yeah. but honestly, his best his best pitch might be a slider. Uh, his slider generated a plenty of in zone whiff, but I'd say probably the splitter um, in terms of just chase rate, swing and miss, you know, outside of the zone and all that good stuff. But it's fastball, curveball, slider, splitter, cutter, and then a variation of the changeup. And then he sprinkled in a sinker. I really think being a ground ball guy can can kind of help put him over the top and lock him in as a, you know, innings eater type of back end of the rotation guy. Cause that fastball average is about 90 miles an hour. It could be a heavy heater that gets a ton of ground balls. Does a really good job already of keeping the ball in the yard. And that's with, with a vertical fastball. So um, he, nothing really stands out with the secondaries. They're all kind of average, but he mixes them all in and, and, and hits the zone with them. So it's, this is one of those guys where it's hard to, pinpoint how he's going to translate but i feel good about him being able to eat innings and be a, a solid you know five for for my team i think if i if, if i'm going to get him it also sounds like a quick project and like he, he's probably open to it so hey you, you get in touch you know tampa i'm just gonna use tampa because kyle snyder was on my mind but you know say tampa signs him on a, on a two-year 20 million dollar deal or a two-year 15 million dollar deal Two for 15, you you know get him in the hands of Kyle Snyder. He says, okay, we're going to tweak your pitch mix to make the most sense from your slot. So you're going to keep that you know, high IVB four-seamer at the top of the zone. We're only going to throw it at the top of the zone. We're going to up your sinker usage. We're going to use that. Curveball, I want you to really commit to it from that slot. And then, hey, mix in a slider occasionally. Use that splitter. So now you've got sinker splitter at the bottom of the zone. You've got fastball top of the zone. You've got a taste-breaking slider that we know is good, and you can get a hammer curveball going from that high release. Yeah, I, I think the right pitching coach will probably sit him down and say, hey, this is what the usage is going to look like, and you've got a, a ton to dream on here. It's like getting a physical specimen that's like seven foot, tons of muscle, no coordination. Yeah. And he ends up at Purdue, he's going to get coordinated and he's going to be an All-American. Yeah. And and building off of that, fills up the zone, you know, and and has the feel to pitch. So I really think I, you you hit the nail on the head. The right situation, he can he can really blossom into a solid piece here. There might be more velo to unlock in there too. He's, he looks like it's pretty low effort. So I, I'm interested to see which team identifies him. And and I think in the right situation, he, he could be a pretty solid arm. Flying through the last three real quick. Yario Rodriguez, what an interesting situation over there. Um, who I'll just kind of give you the floor on Rodriguez, but reliever could be a solid high leverage one um, in a market that you know a lot of teams are in into relief help right now. But Rodriguez now hits the open market, I guess, in a really unique mm-hmm. circumstance. Yeah, no posting fee. He's going to turn twenty-seven in spring training. Here's the deal: he's from Cuba. He made the jump from the Cuban National Series to NPB in 2020. He was a starter his first two years in Japan. Then he made the move to Penn in 2022. He allowed 32 hits and seven runs in 54 and two-thirds innings. He faced 218 hitters that year, allowed zero home runs. Does it with a fastball that flirts with 100 and a good slider. The classic reliever mix. He threw for Cuba in the World Baseball Classic, and then he didn't go back to Japan. He stayed stateside, hoping that he would sign a major league contract. But his MPB employer, the Chunichi Dragons, said that he was still under contract with them. So instead of going back, he 
decided to, I, I guess, like opt out slash sit out. It's, you know, like contract holdout, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> so that was in late March after the WBC. He sat idle the entire year. And then early October rolls around and Chunichi cuts him. So he was technically a free agent. He can sign an MLB deal. If you go to the baseball reference page, you see no 2023. That's the deal. There's no injury to be concerned about. It was a logistics nightmare. And he just didn't throw this year. It's so that in itself is like fascinating. Um, you know, I guess it's it's nice that he's probably gonna be pretty fresh coming into this year. Um, we I saw guess. some good stuff in the WBC in terms of fastball that sits 95. You mentioned flirting with triple digits. It's a weird shape. It's almost like a gyro fastball. So he actually gets a lot of ground balls with it. Um, hmm. which I, I think is fascinating because it's a Sometimes he's getting 13 and zero, like 13 inches of vert, zero horizontal. So it almost has this like dive down. It's not a sinker. So sinker is going to have that horizontal. It almost just lets gravity dive it down. And, and, you know, it's not dead zone because of that gyro type break. So it's unique at a high velocity that generates a lot of ground balls. Then off of that, he has a really gross slider in the low to mid eighties. So it's those two pitches. He's got the stuff to be a you know, high leverage reliever. And I think whoever signs him, Probably knows that there's going to be an acclimation process, but probably signs him in the hopes of being a high leverage reliever. Do you think he gets three years at like a low AAV? No, because there's so much unknown. If he threw in 2023, I think he would, but he didn't. So I, I think we get a one-year deal. What did the numbers look like in 22? In 22, they were damn solid. Yariel Rodriguez. Because I'm looking at the game logs. There's a lot of like struck out the side, struck out the side, struck out the side. Uh, yeah. And not he a 115 ERA. 50, yeah. 54 and two thirds, a 115 ERA. He was punching out 10 guys per nine. He was walking three guys per nine. It's hard to punch out 10 per nine out there. Because uh, it, it, those guys are also contact oriented. Opponents hit about a buck 60. I think you could get a two year. I, I do just off the raw stuff. Yeah. But I'm with you. Like there is a lot of unknown and, you know, who knows what could have been brought to light in terms of that, the way that situation was handled, you know, that could rub some teams the wrong way. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I would want answers before I yeah. sign. <laughs> of course. I will say that slider is just disgusting though. That's going to be a, a lights out pitch immediately. And in that year in 2022, landed that slider first strike 73% of the time. The challenge is the fastball command and, and can he use that kind of shape to his advantage? It's not going to play as well at the top of the zone. So how do you kind of maneuver that two more arms to go real quick here, Jack, we got Yuki Matsui and Wu suck go awesome name. Yuki Matsui reliever lefty 91 to 93. It's similar to Imanaga in terms of like crazy amount of vert, but not similar to Imanaga in terms of the fact that yeah, he's a shorter lefty reliever. High release height, but he he kind of offsets that with 20 inches of vert. So it's a six foot release height, which is high. So that fastball is not going to quite play up the same way, but it will play well still when you're getting that much vert. So it's low 90s. He's going to be coming out of the pen. It's going to be fastball and, you know, and a secondary pitch. And I think he could be a, a good funky lefty out of the bullpen and and someone that I'm sure teams will be happy to give maybe a two year deal to. The numbers are crazy for a funky lefty, 28-year-old. He's been a reliever in NPB since he was 19 years old back in 2015. This guy, since the start of the 2021 NPB season, 152 innings. It's about an average of 50 innings a year. He's got a 1-4-2 ERA, 
a whip under 0 0.9 at 0.88, punching out 12.5 per nine. He's walking three per nine. So the numbers are excellent. Excellent. The question is, does the stuff play as up as it did in NPB stateside? I don't know. Um, he's also a reliever. Like, I, I don't know. Relievers need to have track record, but not too much track record. Otherwise, they're going to expire by the all-star break. It's it's just bizarre how we look at relievers. And I don't think Rafael Montero did them any favors or uh, Robert Suarez did them any favors. Like, it, it's yeah. just a tough one. Like, you can't convince me personally to give a reliever a four-year deal. No, honestly. no. The longest no, I'm going on a reliever is three. Especially coming over from from a, you know another league. So it, it is a weird spot. I think two is the sweet spot. Um, and, and I think that's probably what Montui gets. Yeah. Um, but he might want to one-year prove it. And if he dominates as a lefty reliever, he, he could get an, a nice three-year deal after that. Splitter is crazy. <laughs> Just absolutely. And that seems to be the trend here, right? But he gets good in zone whiff on the fastball with the carry, as I mentioned. Sets up the splitter really well. 30% swinging strike rate on the splitter. It's going to be low 90s fastball. It's going to be mid 80s to upper 80s splitter. And he's going to make you uncomfortable with that. He'll mix in a cutter here and there to, to, to change the uh, change the look. And that's all he needs. And he's been damn good for a while. I will say that cutter is pretty good as well. I, I wonder if he uses that a bit more uh, when he comes to, to Major League Baseball. Cutter splitter would be fun. Cutter splitter would be a problem. <laughs> for righties, that's just a headache of an at-bat. Um, last but not least, woo suck go. Back to the KBO. Another guy that's under six feet, 5'11", 195 pounds, mid-90s fastball, cutter, curve, and then a sweeper. I, I don't have a ton on go, but he's 25. He's mostly been used as a reliever, but I could see somebody that signs him maybe wanting to try to mold him as a starter. Depends on. But, I mean, another guy that at the very least should be a solid reliever. I think the command probably holds him back from being a starter, but someone could try to experiment with that. Regardless, the numbers have been pretty good overall. Yeah, so 2023 was a down year for him. 44 innings. He had a 3.6 ERA, 12 Ks per nine, but four and a half walks per nine. That number was drastically up from the last couple of years. 2021, 58 innings had a 2.17 ERA. And then last year in the KBO, uh, 60 and two-thirds innings, a 1.48, 12 Ks per nine, and three walks per nine. So the thing that did him in this past year was the lack of command which is interesting. So I, I wonder if he gets the command back. Was he battling something? And the tough part about the national free agents is I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah. I, it seems like a one-year deal candidate here, um, yeah. but an interesting flyer with the ability to run it up to 98 at 25 years old. It was just the age 24 season last year. I mean, for the right team that's looking for maybe find a diamond in the rough. Uh, he could definitely fly under the radar and and be a nice little pickup in in what is a really talented international market. So look out for Wusuk Go. I definitely uh, somebody that I think could be a sneaky pickup, and you could maybe groom into a starter in some way eventually, or at least a multi inning reliever. Let's wrap up with this Bowman draft segment here because this is where we eat, Jack. This is where. Is where we make it happen in terms of outside of the first round. Yeah, everybody's going to want to chase the big name autos. If you're buying spots and breaks, whatever it may be, I mean, you aren't always going to pull the best auto. If you buy a box of Bowman Draft in December, you might not pull the best auto. But we want to let you know kind of what could still be a nice pull if you don't get the Wyatt Langford, if you don't get everything else, if you don't get the Tom Brady. Which, by the way, mm -hmm. there's a big bounty on the Tom Brady. I, 
I think it's six figures plus if you pull the most rare version of the Tom Brady. Um, I got to do a little bit more research into that. But Tom Brady's in the set, of course, drafted by the Montreal Expos. And uh, his Expos card is in here. That's going to be a fun chase for people as well. Um, But if you don't pull that or some of the top autos, there's some guys outside of the first round that are pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, Brady's also kind of jacking up the price of his auto by saying that the NFL is mediocre now. Did you see that? Yeah, I he did said, see that. The NFL is way more mediocre than the NFL he was a part of, which, by the way, like he was a part of two years ago. Yeah. yeah, like Not even two. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. That, the, NFL, the, the Super Bowl didn't count with the with the Bucks. I, I loved the clapback from Alex Smith on ESPN. He yeah. was like, dude, you just retired like two years ago and quarterback plays as good as it's ever been. But shout out Tom Brady, the uh, Montreal Expo and uh, shout out whoever gets it. And yeah, good luck to all the all the hunters. Yeah, I think Dave and Adams has a big bounty on his uh, super fractor there. We're looking for prospects, though. And outside of the first round, there's some talent. Uh, You want to do a little snake draft here again? Yeah, why not? Uh, The draft worked the first time. This is a less sexy draft, but this is, you mentioned, like this is kind of where we attack, right? You work between the margins. You you get it done. Um, I'll let you get first pick and we'll go back and forth much like we did. First pick, I had Lankford. That was easy as hell. Who are you going with your first pick outside of the first round? You know who I'm going with. Yeah. You got to know who I'm going with. I'm going with my King Cole Carrick because I think outside of the first round, I don't know if there's a player that is, you know, more tooled up and and more exciting in terms of just the ways that he can impact the game and and just be a popular guy to collect. Carrig, we talked about him in the Rockies top prospect, you know, piece or the top prospect episode, switch hitter, plus speed, started to finally tap into at least average power, a great center fielder, also a great shortstop. Like that's just a fun player. I love the swagger, I love the way he plays. Uh, that's an auto that I don't think people are going to be chasing too hard, um, being that it's a rocky spot. And I think Carrig, if it all clicks, can be a really, really exciting player. And it is worth noting a lot of the environments other than Hartford that he's going to be hitting in, very hitter friendly. So I think he's going to fill up the stat sheet if he can hit enough. And and I do believe he can hit enough. Okay. You ready for where I'm going right now? I'm going really great organization at developing guys that constantly offloads their expiring talent on the pre-arb and arb, you know, contracts. And I'm going with a guy that is clearly multidimensional. Colton Ledbetter was a Tampa Bay Rays selection this year out of Mississippi State, second round pick. Ledbetter was a transfer from Samford. He was great at Samford. This past year at Mississippi State hit 320 with 12 homers and was 17 for 18 in the stolen base department. He walked more than he struck out. At the college level, I look for power and speed. I look for walking more than you strike out. I'm just convinced you're good if you walk more than you strike out. And frankly, if you are a great college hitter, it's hard not to walk more than you strike out because you'll see a lot of uncompetitive pitches, even in the SEC. But the fact that he had an 130-point jump from batting average to OBP. This guy hit 320, but had a 450 on base and was 17 for 18 in the stolen bases department. Give me this guy. He figures out a way to be an outfielder on a really good raised team at some point in the next couple of years. It's giving Josh Lowe. Yeah. I love Ledbetter, man. I, that would have been my other pick. That was a guy going into the draft I was a big fan of as well. And when the Rays took him, I was like, of course. Um, yeah. 
I think it's he's kind of everything that they were hoping Brock Jones would be when they took him kind of in a similar spot. Ledbetter mm-hmm. with metal popped to 115. And then with Wood already in, in his cameo, which was like 14 games, we saw him pop a 108. He's got potentially plus power, or at least well above average with the speed, ran a chase rate below 20%, all of those good things. I love Ledbetter as, as a pickup. I think that's another really good name. And, and a guy that I think does have borderline first round talent, just it didn't all come together with the same track record as some other guys. We're not going to go snake, right? Because now uh, I, I get to pick like how we did it last time. Yep. So dude, this is tough because there's a few names I actually really like, but I'm going to stick with my pre-draft grades and a guy that I loved going into the draft as well. And talk about another team that does a really good job of developing talent and identifying talent. Give me Mac Horvath. Horvath was awesome. I thought borderline was a first round talent out of UNC slipped a little bit outfielder with the Orioles that again, this is just a team that really develops. Well, yes, there was a little bit more swing and miss and you'd like to see from most, you know, established college bats, but massive power. I think still uh, the ability to at least have an average hit tool, a really good approach. And I believe in an organization like the Orioles helping Horvath kind of develop in the bat to ball department. Everything you said about, you know, Bradfield in our last segment uh, with first round guys, I feel really strongly with Horvath. The pull side power is really impressive. I'd like to see him use the whole field a little bit more, but if I'm pulling a Mac Horvath auto, I'm holding it because I do think this is a guy that's quickly going to, going to endear himself as, you know, a guy that probably should have been a first round pick similar to how I loved Connor Norby out of the draft. Uh, I think Horvath as a second round guy can, can quickly, you know, ascend as a, very solid prospect in a very good system. How electric is Homer Bush Jr. on the right day? He's he's electric. He's yeah, really he's, fun. He's my pick. Padres fourth round pick out of Grand Canyon. So this guy was playing center when Jacob Wilson was playing shortstop and Wilson went early to Oakland. Um, somehow Homer Bush lasted until the fourth round. He's 6'3", 200 pounds. Stole 25 bags in college, and in his first 44 pro games, was 22 for 24 in the stolen base department. He's a taller, longer guy that punched out 24 times in 187 plate appearances. He he ran what, like a 12% K rate? And yeah. he hit 325? He got and an eight-game cameo in double A. He reached double, dude. Yeah. That's as, as a day two guy. Reach yeah. double it right away. The, the question is the power, but you mentioned his frame. He's six, three. If he can grow into some pop and, you know, he has strong bloodlines. If he grows into even average pop, it's a plus feel to hit. He's sticking in center. He can motor. He has an awesome name. I think Bush is going to be a, a popular uh, name, relatively speaking in this group, just because of the, the, another organization identifies really well, always cooks I mean, with the Padres in terms of just finding these, these guys that are undervalued, Good swing. Can we get more out of him? I think they can. And and the fact that Bush already reached double, he's on a fast track to the big leagues, which there's not that many center fielders in the way in that system. I can tell you that. I'm buying Padres spots with Dylan Head and Homer Bush. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's what we're it. talking about, right? Like you, you get a Padres spot. Of course you want Dylan Head. But worst case scenario, you, you get a Homer Bush. That's that's pretty good, right? Like that's pretty exciting. So I love the the break spots where your fallback plan is also exciting. I mentioned, you know, how with the Orioles last year with Bowman draft, it was uh Kowser and Norby. I was happy either way. Similar here. Um, I'm a hundred percent with you. I'm going to go upside with my next pick as much as I wanted to go with the high floor bat to ball guy. 
I'm going to go Jack Hurley. I am very concerned about Jack Hurley's bat to ball skills uh, and whether he's going to be able to hit enough uh, double A and, and, and above that. But you can't teach his power. And this guy hit some bombs. Uh, he's got a ton of raw power. He's a freaky athlete, left-handed hitter that can stick in center. Diamondback's got a really exciting piece here for outside of the first round. If he hit a little bit better uh, in the ACC, he probably would have been a first-round pick. But again, struggled with the secondary stuff. I am pretty worried about the, the hit tool. But if I pull an auto of a guy that's this dynamic and this explosive with the speed and power combination, I, I got to be pretty excited about that. Yeah, I don't I don't blame you. Hurley, I was kind of between Hurley and Ledbetter, and then I, I kind of walked myself off Hurley, and I realized yeah. that Homer Bush was still available, and I was like, I'm just going to go do that. Um, but I like the idea, because if he is, if he pops out a year where he hits 20 home runs, you, you immediately, you know, make your money back. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I and, think that's a good one. Um, and I think one of those guys well. is going to work out. But Yeah. I thought he showed pretty well professionally too. Like he got up to high A and, you know, it straight, he struck out, but he still put up some decent numbers and was pretty productive. So one of the Virginia tech guys needs to work out with Hurley and Gavin <laughs> cross, like one of them. Very Just, similar profiles too. I will yeah, say. Give me one. Um, all right. Last pick for me. I'm going to go Mike Bovey. Yeah. Second round pick out of university of Nebraska, Omaha by Milwaukee. And I, I'm just trying to figure out if this guy has juice or not, because he hit eight homers his sophomore year at Omaha. Then he goes to the Cape 37 games. He slugs 333 with no homers. He had six extra base hit. They were all doubles. And then his junior year, 47 games, he only hits four homers. Then 28 games in pro ball, he hits five homers. <laughs> what I will say is the disappointing power year for a big dude at what? He's 6'3", 210. He looks bigger than that. Yeah. He hit 401. 512, 563. So the bat, the bat to ball is crazy. Yeah. So I hope he has juice. <laughs> uh, he He's flashed it. We've seen 108s with Wood, you know, even in his short big league day de- or pro, pro debut. Oh, actually, a 109 I have right here, too. Like he hit the ball pretty hard a couple of times. 109 with that field of hit should absolutely play. I was surprised with some of the struggles at the end of the year, but I think he probably just ran out of gas. It was a long year. Really, really, really good bat to ball skills. I mean, before before making the transition to pro ball was running like a 95% zone contact. Of course, not against the best competition, but it's a great field to hit. I think one of the more underrated hit tool guys in that class. And there is some pop in there. And in, in Milwaukee, he could be a powerful left-handed hitting second baseman type that could be pretty fun. So I, I like Bovi a lot uh, in terms of you know where we're, we're grabbing these guys outside of the first round. That was another guy I was... Very close to when I said contact guy, it was between him and Hurley. And I think depending what day you ask me, some days I'll probably take Bovey. My last pick is Trey Morgan, Ray's guy again. Uh, Morgan's just a, a blast. Like He's a guy that does splits at first base. You know, it was a, was a popular, popular player at LSU. But sweet left-handed swing and put up some good numbers and great bat-to-ball skills. We'll see how much power is there. He flashed some juice. I mean, we we saw a home run actually 440 feet uh, through his, his first pro you know, cameo there. Uh, but he's kind of working to try to lift the ball more consistently. We're going to see what his long-term home is. I, I, he could play a gold glove first base, but I think he has more value, more value in left field. Um, he put up really good numbers in low A in, in his short little stint. And um, I just love the the fun uh, and, and just kind of exciting nature of his game. And he's a good left-handed bat that, you know, could be a pretty well-rounded player. So I, I I'm, I'm happy pulling a Trey Morgan out of the set. So you got four picks. I got three. I'm kind of pissed about it, but 
it's all right because I love Trey Morgan. So. I, I forgot. I forgot that I already, I already picked three times. So there's my extra pick, but there's one more name for you to look out for. Um, your team's probably still beating mine. So you, you traded me for a future pick. So yes. Yeah. For good. the first pick and the next thing that we do with this Bowman draft, uh, the next time we draft Bowman draft, but again, coming out in December, keep an eye out for that. If you have any collectible questions, feel free to always hit me uh, in the DMS. I always love talking, you know, cards, Bowman, et cetera. That's it for me, Jack. Long episode. Uh, no other thoughts? No, Garrett Hampson's a Kansas City Royal. Ooh, electric. Big stuff. We'll definitely hit on that on the Just Baseball Show. Yep. That'll do it. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you later this week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.